Hey there, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to find the most trustworthy resources. We sure do. We Google so hard. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I was like deep in some academic journals this week. 20 tabs deep. <laughs> <laughs> I think my least relatable quality is that I'm constantly purging my Chrome tabs. Mm. I'm never more than five tabs in. <laughs> Meticulous about tab overload. Mm-mm. My tabs are a sleeping dragon and I'm feeding it the gold that is my computer's RAM. I... <laughs> I, I would describe it as you being a dragon and your hoard is all of the Google tabs. It's a nesting thing. You've got tabs in there that are like eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our first episode that we're recording in 2023. New year, new us. No, same us, I think. <laughs> same, same us, same show. Don't worry, nothing has changed. Mm. So I'm excited. Same. What animal do you have for us this week? So this week, I'm going to be talking about the Rio Cauca Sicilian. Oh, this is a specific one? Yes. Scientific name, Typhlonectes natans. Okay. That sounds cool. Yeah. So what was the last word you said? Sicilian? Sicilian, yes. And this is not like someone from Sicily. No. Different thing. We actually got this request in a very unique way. A special way. Yes. So 10-year-old Isaiah in Texas mailed us a handwritten letter requesting any type of Sicilian. I love this. Yes, I was very touched by this. <laughs> I was so excited to get this. That That is a spectacular way to get our attention. <laughs> For sure. And it included illustrations. Yeah, also. so also hand-drawn pictures of Sicilians in their natural habitats. They're on our fridge, by the way. Well, they're currently sitting right next to me on the desk, but <laughs> they will be on the fridge. <laughs> He also included the hint that Sicilians are not worms or snakes. Now, he did ask for any Sicilian. There are over 250 species of Sicilian. Wow. Uh, I've chosen this one for some reasons that I'll talk about later. And the information I'll be pulling from is an article that, again, I will cite later. And also the websites for the Dallas World Aquarium and also Aquarium of the Pacific. Excellent. Thank you. So just talk about its scientific name. Typhlonectes means blind swimmer, and Natans, or Natans perhaps, means swimming. A, a swimmer <laughs> who swims. Wow. Groundbreaking. It has a common name that is sometimes called a rubber eel. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. It is neither of those things. Oh. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Mine has rubber in the name, too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's fun. So what these things look like, they do look like a cross between a worm and a snake. Okay. H- hence Isaiah's hint. Uh, They are aquatic. So think long cylindrical with kind of segmented folds in its body. Oh, okay. Like how an earthworm has the sort of segments down the body. Sort of. Sort of like that. Is it also pink? No. This one is like a gray to black color. Oh, okay. No limbs. So no legs at all. No legs, no problems. It has a mouth and two very small eyes uh, that in some species of Sicilian at least are subcutaneous. So are covered by skin subcutaneous meaning like under yes. skin got it it's making me think of an alaskan bullworm 
Which is not it's from SpongeBob. Right. <laughs> and then the head is interesting to me, at least, in that from the side profile, to me, it looks like a sleeper shark. Oh. Uh, if I were to just show you a side profile of this, uh-huh. just from the nose to like the back of the head, you might think that's what it is. Really? Yeah. In that it has those sort of like blunt sort of pointy nose the like, shape the color the mouth shape yeah. interesting uh-huh. what that has some implications for the teeth situation to me <laughs> it does have teeth for oh sure. wow okay yep. so that's pretty much you're gonna see that and be like this is mm. not a worm we're dealing with <laughs> but what's strange is when you look at it from like a top-down point of view the head shape then becomes more boxy kind really? of like uh, a python oh yeah interesting mm-hmm. it's all a matter of perspective <laughs> Uh, So where these things can be found natively are the drainage basins of the Cauca and Magdalena rivers in Colombia and around the Maracaibo Basin in Venezuela. And the Cauca River is where it gets its name from. So these are freshwater critters then? Yes, this one is. I think they're all freshwater. I don't think they're saltwater Sicilians. I don't know of any saltwater amphibians at all. I would imagine saltwater wouldn't be very good for an amphibian. (laughs) (laughs) They're found in slow-flowing waterways with lots of aquatic vegetation. They can rarely be found on land, too. Oh, okay. So they yes. can come on land. Yes. I imagine that would be a pain with no legs, but snakes seem to have it figured out. So that's where they're natively found. However, uh-oh, in 2015, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation no. Commission. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we were safe. Right. They found one of these in Miami-Dade County. Just throw it in the pot. Just throw it in the big old soup that is South Florida. <laughs> um, so this makes it the first Sicilian found not only in Florida, but in the United States. Really? We didn't have them before? Right. Huh. I think they were restricted to parts of um, southern Mexico, perhaps. Mm. And they didn't go any further north than that. However, it was likely a released or escaped individual from captivity. Like a pet? Perhaps. This particular species is very popular in aquarium and private collection oh okay i can see why they're kind of (laughs) cute yeah so it's unclear if there's an established population that was the only one they found and they this was during like routine testing to see what they were finding in waterways and stuff (laughs) well (laughs) (laughs) found something (laughs) yeah and they confirmed the species through you know um some characteristics but also uh, mitochondrial dna testing i believe it did not survive and though they tried to feed it in captivity and wouldn't eat so Aww. i believe they donated its body to the the museum in gainesville associated with uf i'm going there tomorrow yeah that's exciting i'll <laughs> go see it i don't know if it's on exhibit or anything but it's in their collection i suppose i'll, I'll look for it when i'm there and that information is from the article i mentioned earlier titled first recorded sicilian in florida and in the united states and that's by Sheehy et al., found in the Reptiles and Amphibians Journal, August 2021. So, as we've alluded to, not a snake, not no. a worm, no. is amphibian. It is the often forgotten third order of amphibians. Nobody wants to talk about the Sicilians. <laughs> they don't want you to know about Sicilians. Right. It's all a plot by Big Frog. <laughs> Belongs to the taxonomic family Typhlonectidae, which is the aquatic Sicilians. Oh, are there non-aquatic Sicilians? There are non-aquatic Sicilians. <gasps> really? Uh-huh. They just look so... Subterranean Sicilians. Ooh. <laughs> Meaning underground. Yes. Okay. Because they just have that look, like they look so aquatic to me, right. you know? Now, I had a little bit of confusion on what this was. So first off saying, Sicilians are not the same as sirens. I was confused with this as well, yes. too. I thought they were the same thing. Yes. Or at least related. 
because they do look similar. Sirens are actually aquatic salamanders. Got it. And belong to the salamander order, Uridella. Just like Ohms in our episode 82 in January of 2021. This is all coming together. (laughs) We're building out our taxonomic tree of life. But Sicilians belong to their own order under Amphibia. Oh, they're quite unique then. So Sicilians can be subterranean or aquatic, depending on the species. So where a little bit of confusion for me personally came from was our zoo has both. So the Jacksonville Zoo has both. Right. And they're in different parts of the park. So in the South America exhibit, they have a Sicilian. It's actually this species. Oh, really? Is yes. it? <laughs> and in the Florida exhibit, they have a siren. So that's probably why I also thought we had these here. Right. Because they look similar. They do. Mm. Where the, the big differentiator, though, is the sirens have front legs. Like, but they're tiny. They sure do, don't yes. they? <laughs> it's really cute, tiny little, little nubby legs. <laughs> so digging right into our first category of effectiveness, these are physical attributes and traits that help it do its thing. I'm giving a full 10 out of 10. Really? It doesn't seem like it, but they're very well suited for what they're doing. Really? They, they, <laughs> you're right. They seem a little, uh, they're not very flashy. Uh-huh. They seem kind of subtle. So the first thing I want to talk about is how they perceive their environment. Yeah, for sure. So they're in slow moving waters, lots of silt. Mucky. Right. Muggy. So what they do have are chemosensory tentacles. Tentacles? Yes. Where? Where on earth? They're located on the head between the eyes and nostrils. Like a little mustache. It doesn't go out that far is the thing. Though. Really? I, I guess if I were the first one to find these things, I wouldn't have described it as a tentacle. Mm. It's more like a little, I don't know, nub. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a little mustache? Mm-mm. And what's interesting is they, they have these and also nostrils. And they all kind of feed into anatomy that are very close to each other. So this kind of package of chemosensory organs that they have here. You want all your bases covered. Yeah. You want an innie and an outie, nostrils Mm -hmm. and sensory tentacles, (laughs) I guess. So that seems to be a big part of how they perceive their environment. That makes sense because if you can't see... right. I guess that would also, you, you mentioned that like their eyes are covered by skin. So like, right. if you don't need them because you can't see in that water anyway, why bother and having I, them? They do feed on invertebrates. Um, so they do feed on worms and spiders and that kind of thing. So one of the biggest points I want to give, and this might be a little messed up, <laughs> they do perfectly fine in heavily polluted water. Now, <laughs> that is a great trait to have in the current. That currents. is a fantastic trait to have. You're going to need that so bad. Things are looking great yeah. for Sicilians, <laughs> which is important because other amphibians are facing a lot of die-offs right now because right. they're not well-suited to polluted waters. Yeah, these things do fine. I guess you did mention that they live in, was it stream runoffs? Like runoffs Drainage from basins. Drainage basins, yeah, yeah. So that does imply to me quite a high degree of pollution there. Yeah. So they're just rolling in the filth. They're like, give me that trash water. Yeah. I want to swim in the bottom of your garbage bin. Love it. Can't get enough. Right. So they don't have any limbs, like we mentioned. So that makes when they when they do go on land for whatever reason, you know, they're just kind of flopping about. <laughs> Next thing I want to talk about is how they breathe. This is always interesting in amphibians. Mm -hmm. This one breathes mostly through their skin. 
This is what makes me think they shouldn't do that well in polluted water, right? Because <laughs> if there's a bunch of gunk and chemicals in the water and they're breathing through their skin. I mean, I guess that function, I guess, is taking the oxygen without taking the other stuff. Right. They must have like a really good filtration mm-hmm. system. Maybe like a, the membrane is only permeable to like what they need. Maybe. So while they do mostly breathe their skin, they do have small lungs and they can breathe like air air from like the, the surface. I guess if they're going to be coming out of the water, they would need that too. Mm. They need to have both options. They are viviparous, which is live birth to fully developed young. Odd for an amphibian, right? Now, the part that interested me though was how they are nourished within the, the mother. Really? So the embryos use special fetal teeth. Uh-uh. <laughs> Stop. Full stop. I'm putting an end to this. (laughs) To stimulate oviduct walls to produce secretions that nourishes the embryos. Okay. So they're kind of like nursing on the inside. Right. Huh. (laughs) You know. But it's not milk. Can't say that enough. Not milk. Right, 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 right. right. (laughs) Just a nourishing secretion. (laughs) But they're just chomping right out of there. They're just chomping right into it. I've been pregnant twice. Mm Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine a more horrifying concept than little baby in there just nom 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 from the inside. Cannot imagine a more horrible thing. Well, it could get a little worse. I found a video (laughs) of one giving birth. Okay. It's very interesting in that the opening is not where you think it is. It is not like it is not like a snake (laughs) where it is on the bottom towards the back. It is like the dead back of if you think of it as a cylinder, it Uh is the back of the cylinder. Just right at the end? Yes, right at the end. So when it's giving birth, it looks like a large tube giving birth to smaller (laughs) tubes. But not that much smaller, honestly. (laughs) She has become like a sheath for the the babies. Uh Ew. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and they give birth to two between 2 and 11 of young at a time. That's too many for you to be doing that. <laughs> and they're fully developed, so they just look like miniature virgin- versions of the adult. I love that. Just scale them down a little bit. <laughs> That's very funny. They're pretty cute, too, I think. Well... Okay. Maybe like <laughs> It's the head shape that has that going for him. Okay. Think. Puppy face. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that wraps up effectiveness okay i think they're they're doing great for what you know their ball field is <laughs> yeah that sounds f- I, I did want to ask you you mentioned that you know they have teeth and that there are like fetal teeth in play what do the teeth look like like what kind of teeth are they are they like little pointy teeth or what yeah they're tiny little pointy teeth but they're they're not like super visible they're not like shark teeth or okay. or even snake fangs that kind of thing okay this brings me a little bit of peace, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Though I, I did find a number of pictures of fictional monsters that I think were based on Sicilians. Oh, really? That they just kind of tacked on monster teeth. Oh, like fictional monsters like in a video game or something like that? Um, it seemed like B-horror movie type things. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, on to our next category of ingenuity. These are, you know, smart things that they can do. I couldn't find very much about this, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm just giving a generic 6 out of 10. Sure. Assuming they have enough intelligence to process all of that sensory data that they're taking in. Right. I find the case to be with amphibians, which we just talked about with cane toads on last week's episode. There's not a ton going Mm -hmm. on in in the little noggin of an amphibian in general, I don't think. They seem to be mostly vibe based. Right. 
well, and also with Sicilians in particular, they're hard to study in their natural environment. That's true. Especially subterrestrial Sicilians. Right. Yeah. Because if they're spending all of their time, you know, underground mm-hmm. or, or in muddy water where you can't see what they're doing, maybe they've got like a whole city under there. <laughs> maybe they've got something going on that we just don't know about. Right. I like to give every animal the benefit of the doubt. That's like, maybe there's something going on we don't know about. <laughs> and moving on to our final category of aesthetics which i'm just now noticing i did not put a score for oh let's hear it from the hip this one's off the cuff i'm gonna say seven out of ten that's generous i think the 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 face really does it for me yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay if you tend to like i know that you said they're not a salamander but if you like that kind of general Mm. face i could yeah that's pretty cute yeah, I like round them. features, little beady eyes, stuff like that. Yeah, which I know they can be off-putting for those because of the resemblance to snakes and worms, and those being you know common problematic responses for people. That's true. Yeah, the the wiggly shape is yeah. not exactly appealing to a lot of people, and also you know if they're going to be writhing around in the mud, I think a lot of people don't like that either. Mm. So maybe context based maybe not the most glamorous animal you're going to be seeing. You know how we call, like, people call raccoons trash pandas? Yes. I think we can incorporate this. This could be like a trash noodle, like a trash eel. I don't want to trash the eel. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good boy. Um, Their conservation status is of least concern, and that's based on an IUCN study done in 2020. They'll inherit the earth. They'll be here long after we're gone. And I found a particularly interesting piece of media about these guys. Really? There's a the Sicilian Cotillions song. What? Yes. Okay. For people who don't know what a cotillion is. <laughs> I didn't prior to this. You didn't? Nope. You didn't know what a cotillion is? <laughs> Go for it. Okay. A cotillion, I'm going, I haven't heard anything about cotillion since I was like a kid. But my understanding of what a cotillion is, is that they're usually put on by like swanky, bougie, like rich people clubs. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of like an occasion for... I have only ever heard of this being hosted for young people, for Mm -hmm. like kids and teenagers, basically, where the idea is that everybody gets as fancy as they possibly can. You get dressed up in your fanciest clothes and then you get together and like it's something for like learning manners and like fine dining etiquette. Mm -hmm. It's, It's all about manners and etiquette and stuff like that. Yeah. The concept of having these little trash eels at a cotillion is hilarious to me already. Well, so this was a song written by this band called The Wiggly Tendrils. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was written to celebrate the 200th described Sicilian species. Aww. Back in 2015, I believe. What a celebration. And then what, how I found it was an animated music video on YouTube on the channel for California Academy of Sciences. Oh, I'm very glad that they got on board with this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the music video was made by students at Expression College in Emeryville, California. My understanding is this was also done in partnership with AmphibiaWeb.org. Oh, cute. Yes. Is it a cute song? It is cute. Are the Sicilians all dressed up in fancy clothes? Yes. Oh my god! Do you just want to listen to it real quick? Yeah, if you could, if you could cue that up for me, that'd be great. Alas, we're not invited to Sicilian cotillions. The black tie 
the ladies with the millions Sicilian cotillions Two hundred species I wish there was a billion They live their lives Subterraneous I love their eyes Subcutaneous aquatic production value <laughs> they did a great job animating that i can tell that song's gonna be stuck in my head for a significant amount of time it is on spotify by the way oh amazing i'm gonna add that to every single playlist i've got oh how cute right i'm probably only gonna play like a brief clip but just i want everybody to know that i did watch the whole video and mm-hmm. it is really really cute mm-hmm. and they included some of the little facts that you shared with us it's yeah. a, a nice way to remember those for sure Oh, man, that's going to be in my head real bad. How sweet. Thank you for showing me that. I'm obsessed with it. I was very excited when I found it. I found it because I was trying to find YouTube videos that showed me the details of this particular Sicilian. Mm. Because I wasn't finding written information that that I wanted about it. And came across that. (laughs) How sweet. And watching that video, you know, I like the way that they animated the little Sicilians. And it, it triggered the, like, association that I think what they look like is in Alien... How the mm-hmm. alien has the little alien that comes out of its mouth. Yeah. That's what they look like to me, I <laughs> sort think. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> sure. Very cute. What a blessing. <laughs> so that is the Rio Calca Sicilian. Thank you. And thank you, Ezzy, again. Yeah, thank you. That was a fantastic suggestion. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Jay Keith, do you know what I love more than the trivia, comedy, and celebrity guests on our podcast? Go fact yourself. No, what, Helen? Sharing all of those things with an actual audience. Yes, well, lucky for you, Go Fact Yourself is back to being a live audience show. Woohoo! Yeah, we've got a free recording coming up on January 15th in Los Angeles and February 11th in Pasadena. And if you can't make it there, all of our recordings will still be available as a podcast. Twice a month, every month on MaximumFun.org. Yeah, no excuses. So if you're not listening, you can go fact yourself. Hey there, it's Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Lara House. We host Tiny Victories, the 15-minute podcast that's about the little things. Getting into the tiny victory frame of mind is about recognizing minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. Isn't it a wonderful day when the first password you try actually works? When it's freezing cold outside and toasty as all get out in my shower, my tiny victory is that I turn off the water and get on with my day. We can't change this big dumb world, but we can celebrate the tiny wins. So join us on Maximum Fun or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get tiny! So, Ellen, what have you brought us this week? This week, I'm talking about the rubber boa. Oh, okay. There's the rubber you were talking about. Yes. But this is a, a real animal, not a gag gift you would purchase for someone at mm. a novelty store, perhaps. This is a real snake. Okay. Uh, the scientific name is Carina bowtie. So, be uh, not like bowtie, like a thing you would wear. It's like B-O-T-T-A-E. Hmm. Maybe bowtie would be a better way to pronounce that. This was submitted by Sean Renning. Thank you, Sean. And I'm getting my information from the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, as well as um, a few different articles that I'll cite as they come up. Most of them come from Herpetological Review. 
if you've never heard of this boa, because I got to say, it's like not the most well-known North American snake. Uh, maybe because it's not one of the, you know, super deadly ones. And all anybody wants to ever talk about are the super deadly ones. They're really not that big of a snake. They're mm. only one to two and a half feet long. Oh. Which is really small for a boa. I think they're the smallest boa. They're found in northwestern North America, especially along the Pacific coast. Oh. So from California all the way up to Vancouver, Canada, which is really far north for a snake. Mm-hmm. And as far east as Wyoming and Montana. So they don't get that far east. It's typically just the northwest you're going to find them in. Their taxonomic family is Boadae, which are the boas. Mm-hmm. And boas are snakes who kill their prey with constriction. They don't use venom or anything like that. They wrap their body around the prey and then squeeze to choke them, not crush them. Sometimes people think that they're like trying to crush them and kill them with like concussive force, I guess. It's not that. They asphyxiate them. That sounds like it would be easier and take less energy. Right. (laughs) On a note about boas, I used to think that boa constrictors were just like the name for all of these like boas. Mm. Like I thought they they were because they constrict to kill their prey. I thought boa constrictor was just that's what they are. This whole group of them. Turns out that is the scientific name of a species. Oh. I didn't know that until very recently. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that like genus name boa species name constrictor is like a specific species of snake does that have a common name boa constrictor (laughs) i see the boa constrictor (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, easy so if you've ever wanted to like have a scientific name in your pocket that you just like know off the top of your head Mm. (laughs) it's boa constrictor i guess There are actually two species of rubber boa, this one and then the southern rubber boa, which is endemic to Southern California. Hmm. But this one is far more common. That one is in like a really small range. So most of the information that I could find was about probably this one. Uh, They're called rubber boas because of their skin. Their skin is covered in scales like other snakes, but their scales are really, really small and smooth they're like flush with the skin Mm -hmm. so that rather than a lot of other snakes that have scales that kind of overlap on each other they have this sort of smooth appearance which makes them look like they're made of rubber it also makes them look very wrinkly oh because like when they when they twist it creates a lot of folds in the skin uh, and it just makes them look kind of wrinkly. You kind of see that in the neck parts of uh, ball pythons. Yeah, but this is like that, but all over the whole body. <laughs> They're very, they look very, they just look kind of wrinkly. Hmm. Um, so to get into my ratings for the rubber boa, for effectiveness, this is going to sound so harsh. Oh boy. <laughs> this is really harsh, but hear me out. Six out of ten. Okay. I couldn't really find any discussion about why they have these really smooth, small scales. Like, Mm. what is that doing for them? I have a few thoughts about why they might be like that, but this is purely the train has pulled into the speculation station. It's all just guesses. When they're coiled, you can really see like wrinkles and folds that made it look like make it look like their skin is like loose Mm -hmm. or baggy on their skin. Now, I've seen a lot of videos of them, and it doesn't look like their skin is particularly loose. They don't look floppy, Mm -hmm. right? It's just, I think it's just the way that it folds. So if I had to guess as to why, I think it helps them give them better flexibility. Hmm. Like, I think they can bend more at tighter angles if their scales are really small, because so that their like large scales aren't preventing them from bending. 
It could also be for similar reasons as like moles, for example, have fur that you can push in either direction. Oh. You know what I'm talking about? Like mole fur doesn't all grow in just one direction so that sure. if they need to back out of their tunnel, yeah, they can do that without it pushing their fur back. Mm-hmm. And And these snakes do spend a lot of their time underground. So I imagine if they need to like back up out of a tunnel or a hole or something like that, having really small scales that aren't going to snag, mm-hmm. I guess that would be really helpful for that. I could also maybe see it being for similar reasons that the hagfish has this really loose baggy skin Hmm. so that um, if like a predator or something that has sharp teeth grabs onto their skin, the skin will sort of slip off of the muscle. And for the hagfish, it lets the hagfish get away with only like a tear to the skin that doesn't pierce through to the muscle, Hmm. which would be really helpful. Um, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't really find any discussion as to whether that's the case or not. Hmm. Uh, I could see any of those being <laughs> a good explanation for why they have this rubbery sort of skin. But it also isn't very strong. Like, it doesn't give them that sort of, like, armor plating that other snakes have. Um, it's not very tough, you know? So it's kind of like increased mobility at the cost of defense. A big point that I gave them was for cold tolerance. Like I mentioned, they live super far up north, which you really don't see a ton of of snakes up there. Rubber boas are able to withstand much lower temperatures than any other boa and a lot of other reptiles. Mm-hmm. So being cold-blooded, they, well, cold-blooded in air quotes, uh, they're ectothermic. Yeah. I don't know. They're ectothermic, <laughs> so they rely on external heat to keep their body warm which is especially difficult when you're most active at night. They are nocturnal, so they don't bask in the sun, which is what a lot of other reptiles do to warm their body. They use like light from the sun to warm their body. So researchers who tracked the temperatures of rubber boas found that they heat up a lot faster than they cool down and suggested that this is probably because of internal physiological mechanisms that might be helping them retain heat. Mm. So they can heat up pretty quickly and they can hold on to that heat so that they're not cooling down very quickly also. So in this paper, they suggest that the snakes might be able to adjust their heart rate. Mm. So letting their heart beat more quickly when they're warming up so that that's circulating the blood more and making sure that the warm blood is reaching the rest of their body, warming the whole body very quickly. And then when temperatures start to fall, they can slow their heart rate down so that they're not spreading cold blood through their body and try to retain some of that temperature. This is based on like what other reptiles do to retain heat. Um, But they also could be able to direct the flow of their blood Hmm. to prioritize certain parts of their body that they want to keep warm. So they found that rubber boas keep their head much warmer than the rest of their body. Like at night when it gets really cold, their head will be much, much warmer than like the back of their body. So they could be directing blood flow and saying, oh, we want to really keep the warm blood in the head area Mm. and let the rest of it get cold if it wants, because you can let that part of your body get cold. The head's the important part. Mm -hmm. So keeping their brain warm um, is the important part. So I thought that was kind of cool. That was um, in a paper called Physiological and Behavioral Control of Heating and Cooling Rates in Rubber Boas, Karina Bowtie. And that was by Ying Zhang et al. And that was in the Journal of Thermal Biology in August of 2007. Nice. I guess it's not super unheard of for the to be in that cold area because that, that's also the stomping ground of, you know, the, the newts versus... Uh, garter, garter snakes, snakes. yeah <laughs> yeah so you, i wonder if they get caught up in that at all i don't think so that's not really their ball game yeah 
Um, the uh, next thing that I wanted to give them some points for is what I call a butthead. What? <laughs> a butthead. Their tail is thick and rounded at the tip rather than tapering like a lot oh, of other snakes okay. do. It's huh. rounded off and it's really big and thick at the end. In combination with that, their head is very small and they don't have that sort of definition in their like neck and cheeks that you see in some other snakes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a straight line. Okay. And it makes it really difficult to tell their head from their tail. This is sounding like a very similar shape to the Sicilian. Yes. <laughs> Actually, they do look pretty similar in some ways. So I was, that, that's kind of why I want to talk about the rubber boa when okay. we're talking about the Sicilian because they're kind of similar vibes, I think. But this makes it so that if they're getting attacked by a predator, what they'll do is they'll like coil up to protect their head and then they poke their tail out and the tail looks like their head. Mm. So they're hoping that the predator will attack their tail, kind of similar to how a, a lizard will wiggle their tail when they're being attacked mm -hmm. so that the predator will go for the tail and then the lizard drops the tail and runs away. Problem with the rubber boa is that their tail doesn't detach. Right. So like... What good is it doing you to get the predator to attack your tail? I guess it assumes a, an attack is coming either way. Might right. as well get it to not attack the brain and such. Right. But if it grabs your tail, it's going to have your whole body. Like, it, it's got a hold of you now. <laughs> Maybe. This has been, like, repeatedly described as not an effective tactic. Oh, I see. Like, this is, does not really help very much at all. <laughs> like, they try it, but, but they are... Uh, very, very easily predated upon by okay. most things. <laughs> like, if it's big enough to eat them, it probably eats them. We'll just eat it at that end first. <laughs> the tail does more than that, and I'll get into it in ingenuity. Okay. But they are eaten by, you know, like any nocturnal predator big enough, big enough to eat them. So mm. skunks, owls, foxes, coyotes, all that stuff. Just eats them right up. So, yeah, that's kind of why I docked so much for them is that they're essentially defenseless. You know, their biggest sort of line of defense is just hiding. Mm -hmm. They don't have any markings on their body. Like, they're just solid brown the whole way through with, like, a, a lighter underbelly. But spending most of their time underground and being nocturnal, so they're trying to, like, stay out of predator's way basically that's really all they have going for them once they're found they're found it's kind of game <laughs> over for them at that point which a lot of other snakes kind of have a lot more tools in their belt like when you're comparing them against other snakes they don't seem to me to be as well suited to putting up a fight there's no backup plan no no backup plan <laughs> which brings me to ingenuity for the rubber boa this is i feel where it makes up for some of this stuff okay. this is i give them an eight out of ten for ingenuity very good so since rubber boas, I mentioned they don't exactly have formidable physical defenses. Instead, they hide from predators by spending a lot of time underground. They go in either old rodent burrows or they'll hide underneath logs and rocks. Every video I found of people finding them in the wild was flipping over logs. That being said, they're still hard to find. Like they can be very, very difficult to find. Rubber boas eat basically anything they can fit down their throat in one piece, but what they really specialize in is baby rodents, like young, small oh. mammals. So like mice, squirrels, shrews, stuff like that. Like if it is a small mammal, that is really what they're going for, specifically the babies. So their strategy here is to find a nest. Mm -hmm. And once they find a nest that's full of babies, they pick the babies off one by one and use their tail to 
fight back the mother. So if the mother comes to try to fight the snake and protect her babies, they push her away with that big, thick tail. Mm. They kind of use the tail almost like a like a boxing glove huh. to kind of like push the mother away. So she's trying to fight with a snake's tail while the head is busy eating the babies. So that's why a lot of times when people find these snakes in the wild the tail is usually really like scarred up and like has a lot of injuries and scratches on it and i think a lot of times that's guessed to be because of predator attacks but it's probably the other way Hmm. around it's because they're using it to to eat rodents that's pretty impressive i think most snakes don't have that much i guess capacity for being stressed during eating yeah but also don't have that much like dexterity over their the end of their tail yeah you know or any reason to use the end of their tail because mm-hmm. it's not that bulky mm-hmm. but they're they're able to kind of use it like a pole almost like to keep mom away from their head so very interesting now one thing about rubber boas that they're known for behaviorally is their extremely docile temperament mm. like they are known for like the one thing people talk about when they talk about rubber boas is that they are very very calm they're not very fast moving and I hesitate to to use the word never, but every person I found talking about them said that they never bite and never strike. Hmm. Um, so I'm interpreting that to mean that nobody has recorded them striking. You know, like if it, if it has a mouth, it can bite, you right. know, uh, only a Sith deals in absolutes. I'm not going to say that they never bite, but it is <laughs> such a rare occurrence that nobody has at least reported being bitten by one mm-hmm. and that really their tactic is to hide. Um, they're, they're not interested in biting you at all. Like I said, they don't have any way to hurt you by biting. So they just really don't bother, but they're not too docile. So they have been documented fighting back against predators who try to eat them in some cases. So two important ones. One of them is in September of 1998, a bird watcher witnessed a young red-tailed hawk fall out of a tree and stumble to the ground dead. Uh, Upon further investigation, it was found that the hawk had been eating a rubber boa and during the struggle, in its sort of final moments, the boa was able to wrap its body around the hawk's neck and choke it out. Hmm. The hawk had already eaten the boa. Like, the middle part of the boa had already been eaten. It was already dead. Oh. But it just took the hawk down with it, basically. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least it's going to take out hawk's that would eat rubber boas, right? In the hopes that, okay, that one got me, but I'm going to make sure that one doesn't reproduce to make more boa-eating hawks. Yeah, I mean, he might not be swift, but his (laughs) vengeance sir was. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, And that that was recorded in Herpetological Review in March of 2000 by Ronald Van Heest and Jessica Hay. And also in 2021, so super recently, Mm. images from a camera trap showed a skunk with a rubber boa wrapped around its neck. So the skunk had clearly been trying to eat the rubber boa, and the rubber boa was in the process of fighting back. Now, this is a little bit of a mysterious observation, because since it's photos, they weren't able to tell what had happened prior or what happened next. So it's really just the snapshot of the struggle between a skunk and a rubber boa. Mm -hmm. So it's not known whether whether the boa got away, whether the skunk did get to eat the boa, or whether it died. That, this one's kind of a mystery, but at least it does show that the boa is fighting back. It's not completely defenseless. 
And that was also recorded in Herpetological Review in March of 2021. That was submitted by Jackson D. Shedd and Tim Torrell. Hmm. Interesting, very interesting observations. I interpreted this as, um, for a creature with no hands, they sure are throwing them. (laughs) It's because they threw all their hands they had. (laughs) Ran out of hands. (laughs) Finally, for aesthetics for the rubber boa, I'm giving them a 9 out of 10. They're so cute. They're (laughs) friend-shaped. They look like a sock puppet. (laughs) They're so silly. (laughs) They're soft and wrinkly, and I really like that. It's adorable. Um, When they're born, the babies are pink, which combined with like the smooth wrinkliness of them does make them look like a worm. Okay. So they look like a little earthworm. Also, the fact that they have no markings uh, makes them look like dog poop. Oh, no. (laughs) Like when they're all coiled up on (laughs) the ground. They look like dog poop. They really do. (laughs) (laughs) To quote comedian Vinnie Thomas, rubber boas are one of only a few snakes that has evolved to look like a goofball. Just not a serious reptile at all. (laughs) Which is very accurate. They don't look serious. (laughs) They look very friendly and and very adorable. Just don't wear them like a necklace. Don't. Not at all. Don't let them anywhere near your neck. (laughs) Uh, to wrap up for the rubber boa, their conservation status is overall of least concern, according to the IUCN. It's kind of difficult to tell what their population numbers look like because they're really hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, scientists who go out to try to count them usually only find a couple when they go out looking for them. Some areas within their range will have them like considered locally endangered, like at the state level or something like that. But overall, they're of least concern. Due to their docile personalities and just overall harmlessness, rubber boas are popular animals to use for educational programs and outreach. So this is a really common animal that like zoos will use to sort of like when they have like a zookeeper out with an animal that guests can go like touch and pet and hold. Rubber boas are a really common one to use, especially for people who uh, are afraid of snakes. Mm. So if you're otherwise very afraid of snakes, this is a great sort of gateway snake. (laughs) This is a good one that you can touch it. It's not going to hurt you. Don't like go up and harass them in the wild. Don't do that. Leave them alone when you see them. But you know, if you're offered the opportunity to interact with one in like a safe and ethical way um that can be a really nice learning opportunity and experience to connect with with an animal that you might otherwise be afraid of because they literally like there's nothing they can do to to really hurt you which is another great reason why you should leave them alone they're no threat to you at all you know you don't need to preemptively uh, do anything about them when you see them around. And like I said, they eat rodents. So it's great, mm-hmm. great, great pest control. They're amazing to have around if you have them. Yeah. I always tell people I will always take snakes over the things they eat. Yes. By the way, the, the there's a word for snake phobia. Did you know that? I assume there was. I just don't know what it is. The fear of snakes is called ophidiophobia. Ophidiophobia. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. So if you are, <laughs> if you do have ophidiophobia, which is a perfectly normal fear to have, it's human evolution instinct, right? You see a snake, don't touch it. That's primate brain functioning as intended. But if you do want to like start fostering a connection with snakes, this is a great one to start with. Um, this is just truly one of the snakes ever. Very good. I like them. I We're going to the Northwest soon, and I will keep an eye out, and I hope I get to see one. I've Let's, never seen one. Yes, hopefully see one of those newts. 
I know. We got a lot of stuff to look for when we go Northwest. <laughs> so it's a fun one. And that's the rubber boa. Thanks, honey. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, we'd love it if you could come hang out with us on social media. Uh, we're on you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Discord, stuff like that. Links to everything will be in the show notes below. Also, if you did like what you heard today, I would love it if you could leave us a review on your podcast app, whatever you're using to listen to us. If you can leave us a review, please do that. We got a couple of really sweet ones recently that I wanted to share. Uh, one of them was by Pokey the Ghost, who said, Gotta love the joy of opening my podcast app of choice and seeing my favorite animal podcast made an episode about my favorite animals. And this was left just after the Narwhal and Snow Monkey episode. So it's got to be one of those. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> I was happy about that. Thank, thank you for leaving that, uh, Pokey the Ghost. And another review was left by, I hope this is how you want wanted this to be said, Catland Sock Show, who said, I'm a huge nature nerd, especially animals. I watch all the documentaries I can, read tons of books, and I'm so happy I started this podcast. I heard the commercials on other Max Fun shows and decided to give it a go, and I'm burning through past episodes. Their <laughs> approach is accessible and super informative, and the rating system is real fun. If you're into animals, you'll dig this one. Thank you. That's great. I really appreciated that. I am so glad when nature nerds can can come together and find community through listening to the show and connecting with the other people who do. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on the network with their other shows that we love so much. If you want to support our show <laughs> and, and keep us surviving and thriving, you can do so over at MaximumFun.org. And also thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music. That is a real banger. Song of the summer. And that's all. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.